Section 7 of Natural Theology by William Paley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 of Mechanical Arrangement in the Human Frame, Part 1. We proceed, therefore, to propose certain examples taken out of this class, making choice of such as, amongst those which have come to our knowledge, appear to be the most striking and the best understood, but obliged, perhaps, to postpone both these recommendations to a third, that of the example being capable of explanation without plates or figures or technical language. Of the Bones 1. I challenge any man to produce, in the joints and pivots of the most complicated or the most flexible machine that was ever contrived, a construction more artificial, or more evidently artificial, than that which is seen in the vertebrae of the human neck. Two things were to be done. The head was to have the power of bending forward and backward, as in the act of nodding, stooping, looking upward or downward, and at the same time of turning itself round upon the body to a certain extent, the quadrant we will say, or rather perhaps a hundred and twenty degrees of a circle. For these two purposes two distinct contrivances are employed. First, the head rests immediately upon the uppermost of the vertebrae, and is united to it by a hinge joint upon which joint the head plays freely forward and backward, as far either way as is necessary, or as the ligaments allow, which was the first thing required. But then the rotatory motion is unprovided for. Therefore, secondly, to make the head capable of this, a further mechanism is introduced, not between the head and the uppermost bone of the neck, where the hinge is, but between that bone and the bone next underneath it. It is a mechanism resembling a tenon and mortis. This second, or uppermost bone but one, has what anatomists call a process, viz. a projection, somewhat similar in size and shape to a tooth, which tooth, entering a corresponding hole or socket in the bone above it, forms a pivot or axle upon which that upper bone, together with the head which it supports, turns freely in a circle, and as far in the circle as the attached muscles permit the head to turn. Thus are both motions perfect without interfering with each other. When we nod the head, we use the hinge joint, which lies between the head and the first bone of the neck. When we turn the head round, we use the tenon and mortis, which runs between the first bone of the neck and the second. We see the same contrivance, and the same principle, employed in the frame or mounting of a telescope. It is occasionally requisite that the object end of the instrument be moved up and down, as well as horizontally or equatorially. For the vertical motion, there is a hinge upon which the telescope plays, for the horizontal or equatorial motion, an axis upon which the telescope and the hinge turn round together. And this is exactly the mechanism which is applied to the motion of the head. Nor will anyone here doubt of the existence of counsel and design, except it be by that debility of mind which can trust to its own reasonings in nothing. We may add that it was, on another account also, expedient, that the motion of the head backward and forward should be performed upon the upper surface of the first vertebra. For if the first vertebra itself had bent forward, it would have brought the spinal marrow, at the very beginning of its course, upon the point of the tooth. 2. Another mechanical contrivance, not unlike the last in its object, but different and original in its means, is seen in what anatomists call the forearm, that is, in the arm between the elbow and the wrist. Here, for the perfect use of the limb, two motions are wanted, a motion at the elbow, backward and forward, which is called a reciprocal motion, and a rotatory motion by which the palm of the hand, as occasion requires, may be turned upward. 
How is this managed? The forearm, it is well known, consists of two bones lying alongside each other, but touching only towards the ends. One, and only one of these bones, is joined to the cubit, or upper part of the arm, at the elbow, the other alone to the hand at the wrist. The first, by means at the elbow of a hinge joint, which allows only of motion in the same plane, swings backward and forward, carrying along with it the other bone and the whole forearm. In the meantime, as often as there is occasion to turn the palm upward, that other bone, to which the hand is attached, rolls upon the first by the help of a groove or hollow near each end of one bone to which is fitted a corresponding prominence in the other. If both bones had been joined to the cubit or upper arm at the elbow, or both to the hand at the wrist, the thing could not have been done. The first was to be at liberty at one end and the second at the other, by which means the two actions may be performed together. The great bone, which carries the forearm, may be swinging upon its hinge at the elbow at the very time that the lesser bone, which carries the hand, may be turning round it in the grooves. The management also of these grooves, or rather of the tubercles and grooves, is very observable. The two bones are called the radius and the ulna. Above, i.e. towards the elbow, a tubercle of the radius plays into a socket of the ulna, whilst below, i.e. towards the wrist, the radius finds the socket and the ulna the tubercle. A single bone in the forearm, with a ball and socket joint at the elbow, which admits of motion in all directions, might in some degree have answered the purpose of both moving the arm and turning the hand, but how much better it is accomplished by the present mechanism any person may convince himself who puts the ease and quickness with which he can shake his hand at the wrist circularly, moving likewise, if he please, his arm at the elbow at the same time, in competition with the comparatively slow and laborious motion with which his arm can be made to turn round at the shoulder by the aid of a ball and socket joint. 3. The spine, or backbone, is a chain of joints of very wonderful construction. Various difficult and almost inconsistent offices were to be executed by the same instrument. It was to be firm, yet flexible. Now I know no chain made by art which is both these, for by firmness I mean not only strength but stability. Firm, to support the erect position of the body, flexible, to allow of the bending of the trunk in all degrees of curvature. It was further also, which is another and quite a distinct purpose from the rest, to become a pipe or conduit for the safe conveyance from the brain of the most important fluid of the animal frame, that, namely, upon which all voluntary motion depends, the spinal marrow, a substance not only of the first necessity to action, if not to life, but of a nature so delicate and tender, so susceptible and so impatient of injury, as that any unusual pressure upon it, or any considerable obstruction of its course, is followed by paralysis or death. Now the spine was not only to furnish the main trunk for the passage of the medullary substance from the brain, but to give out, in the course of its progress, small pipes therefrom, which, being afterwards indefinitely subdivided, might, under the name of nerves, distribute this exquisite supply to every part of the body. The same spine was also to serve another use not less wanted than the preceding, viz. to afford a fulcrum, stay, or basis, or more properly speaking a series of these, for the insertion of the muscles which are spread over the trunk of the body, in which trunk there are not, as in the limbs, cylindrical bones, to which they can be fastened, and likewise, which is a similar use, to furnish a support for the ends of the ribs to rest upon. Bespeak of a workman a piece of mechanism which shall comprise all these purposes, and let him set about to contrive it. Let him try his skill upon it. 
let him feel the difficulty of accomplishing the task before he be told how the same thing is effected in the animal frame. Nothing will enable him to judge so well of the wisdom which has been employed. Nothing will dispose him to think of it so truly. First, for the firmness yet flexibility of the spine, it is composed of a great number of bones, in the human subject of twenty-four, joined to one another and compacted together by broad bases. The breadth of the bases upon which the parts severally rest, and the closeness of the junction, give to the chain its firmness and stability. The number of parts, and consequent frequency of joints, its flexibility. Which flexibility, we may also observe, varies in different parts of the chain is least in the back, where strength more than flexure is wanted, greater in the loins, which it was necessary should be more supple than the back, and greatest of all in the neck, for the free motion of the head. Then, secondly, in order to afford a passage for the descent of the medullary substance, each of these bones is bored through in the middle in such a manner as that, when put together, the hole in one bone falls into a line and corresponds with the holes in the two bones contiguous to it by which means the perforated pieces, when joined, form an entire, close, uninterrupted channel, at least whilst the spine is upright and at rest. But as a settled posture is inconsistent with its use, a great difficulty still remained, which was to prevent the vertebrae shifting upon one another, so as to break the line of the canal as often as the body moves or twists, or the joints gaping externally whenever the body is bent forward, and the spine thereupon made to take the form of a bow. These dangers, which are mechanical, are mechanically provided against. The vertebrae, by means of their processes and projections, and of the articulations which some of these form with one another at their extremities, are so locked in and confined as to maintain, in what are called the bodies or broad surfaces of the bones, the relative position nearly unaltered, and to throw the change and the pressure, produced by flexion, almost entirely upon the intervening cartilages, the springiness and yielding nature of whose substance admits of all the motion which is necessary to be performed upon them, without any chasm being produced by a separation of the parts. I say of all the motion which is necessary, for although we bend our backs to every degree almost of inclination, the motion of each vertebra is very small. Such is the advantage which we receive from the chain being composed of so many links, the spine of so many bones. Had it consisted of three or four bones only, in bending the body the spinal marrow must have been bruised at every angle. The reader need not be told that these intervening cartilages are gristles, and he may see them in perfection in a loin of veal. Their form also favors the same intention. They are thicker before than behind, so that, when we stoop forward, the compressible substance of the cartilage, yielding in its thicker and anterior part to the force which squeezes it, brings the surfaces of the adjoining vertebrae nearer to the being parallel with one another than they were before, instead of increasing the inclination of their planes, which must have occasioned a fissure or opening between them. Thirdly, for the medullary canal giving out in its course, and in a convenient order, a supply of nerves to different parts of the body, notches are made in the upper and lower edge of every vertebra, two on each edge, equidistant on each side from the middle line of the back. When the vertebrae are put together, these notches, exactly fitting, form small holes, through which the nerves, at each articulation, issue out in pairs in order to send their branches to every part of the body, and with an equal bounty to both sides of the body. The fourth purpose assigned to the same instrument is the insertion of the bases of the muscles and the support of the ends of the ribs. And for this fourth purpose, especially the former part of it, 
a figure specifically suited to the design and unnecessary for the other purposes is given to the constituent bones whilst they are plain and round and smooth towards the front where any roughness or projection might have wounded the adjacent viscera they run out behind and on each side into long processes to which processes the muscles necessary to the motions of the trunk are fixed and fixed with such art that whilst the vertebrae supply a basis for the muscles the muscles help to keep these bones in their position or by their tendons to tie them together that most important however and general property viz the strength of the compages and the security against luxation was to be still more specially consulted for where so many joints were concerned and where in every one derangement would have been fatal it became a subject of studious precaution for this purpose the vertebrae are articulated that is the movable joints between them are formed by means of those projections of their substance which we have often mentioned under the name of processes and these so lock in with and overwrap one another as to secure the body of the vertebrae not only from accidentally slipping but even from being pushed out of its place by any violence short of that which would break the bone i have often remarked and admired this structure in the chine of a hare in this as in many instances a plain observer of the animal economy may spare himself the disgust of being present at human dissections and yet learn enough for his information and satisfaction by even examining the bones of the animals which come upon his table let him take for example into his hands a piece of the clean picked bone of a hare's back consisting we will suppose of three vertebrae he will find the middle bone of the three so implicated by means of its projections or processes with the bone on each side of it that no pressure which he can use will force it out of its place between them it will give way neither forward nor backward nor on either side in whichever direction he pushes he perceives in the form or junction or overlapping of the bones an impediment opposed to his attempt a check and guard against dislocation in one part of the spine he will find a still further fortifying expedient in the mode according to which the ribs are annexed to the spine each rib rests upon two vertebrae that is the thing to be remarked and any one may remark it in carving a neck of mutton the manner of it is this the end of the rib is divided by a middle ridge into two surfaces which surfaces are joined to the bodies of two contiguous vertebrae the ridge applying itself to the intervening cartilage now this is the very contrivance which is employed in the famous iron bridge at my door at bishop wearmouth and for the same purpose of stability viz the cheeks of the bars which pass between the arches ride across the joints by which the pieces composing each arch are united each crossbar rests upon two of these pieces at their place of junction and by that position resists at least in one direction any tendency in either piece to slip out of its place thus perfectly by one means or the other is the danger of slipping laterally or of being drawn aside out of the line of the back provided against and to withstand the bones being pulled asunder longitudinally or in the direction of the line a strong membrane runs from one end of the chain to the other sufficient to resist any force which is ever likely to act in the direction of the back or parallel to it and consequently to secure the whole combination in their places the general result is that not only the motions of the human body necessary for the ordinary offices of life are performed with safety but that it is an accident hardly ever heard of that even the gesticulations of a harlequin distort his spine upon the whole and as a guide to those who may be inclined to carry the consideration of this subject further there are three views under which the spine ought to be regarded 
and in all which it cannot fail to excite our admiration. These views relate to its articulations, its ligaments, and its perforation, and to the corresponding advantages which the body derives from it for action, for strength, and for that which is essential to every part, a secure communication with the brain. The structure of the spine is not in general different in different animals. In the serpent tribe, however, it is considerably varied, but with a strict reference to the conveniency of the animal. For whereas in quadrupeds the number of vertebrae is from thirty to forty, in the serpent it is nearly one hundred and fifty. Whereas in men and quadrupeds the surfaces of the bones are flat, and these flat surfaces laid one against the other and bound tight by sinews, in the serpent the bones play one with another like a ball and socket, so that they have a free motion upon one another in every direction. That is to say, in men and quadrupeds, firmness is more consulted, in serpents, pliancy. Yet even pliancy is not obtained at the expense of safety. The backbone of a serpent, for coherence and flexibility, is one of the most curious pieces of animal mechanism with which we are acquainted. The chain of a watch, I mean the chain which passes between the spring barrel and the fusee, which aims at the same properties, is but a bungling piece of workmanship in comparison with that of which we speak. 4. The reciprocal enlargement and contraction of the chest to allow for the play of the lungs depends upon a simple yet beautiful mechanical contrivance, referable to the structure of the bones which enclose it. The ribs are articulated to the backbone, or rather to its side projections, obliquely, that is, in their natural position, the bend or slope from the place of articulation downwards. But the basis upon which they rest at this end being fixed, the consequence of the obliquity, or the inclination downwards, is that, when they come to move, whatever pulls the ribs upwards necessarily at the same time draws them out, and that whilst the ribs are brought to a right angle with the spine behind, the sternum, or part of the chest to which they are attached in front, is thrust forward. The simple action, therefore, of the elevating muscles does the business. Whereas, if the ribs had been articulated with the bodies of the vertebrae at right angles, the cavity of the thorax could never have been further enlarged by a change of their position. If each rib had been a rigid bone, articulated at both ends to fixed bases, the whole chest had been immovable. Kyle has observed that the breastbone, in an easy inspiration, is thrust out one-tenth of an inch, and he calculates that this, added to what is gained to the space within the chest by the flattening or descent of the diaphragm, leaves room for forty-two cubic inches of air to enter at every drawing in of the breath. When there is a necessity for a deeper and more laborious inspiration, the enlargement of the capacity of the chest may be so increased by effort as that the lungs may be distended with seventy or a hundred such cubic inches. The thorax, says Schellhammer, forms a kind of bellows, such as never have been, nor probably will be, made by any artificer. 5. The patella, or knee-pan, is a curious little bone, in its form and office unlike any other bone of the body. It is circular, the size of a crown piece, pretty thick, a little convex on both sides, and covered with a smooth cartilage. It lies upon the front of the knee, and the powerful tendons by which the leg is brought forward pass through it, or rather it makes a part of their continuation, from their origin in the thigh to their insertion in the tibia. It protects both the tendon and the joint from any injury which either might suffer by the rubbing of one against the other, or by the pressure of unequal surfaces. It also gives to the tendons a very considerable mechanical advantage by altering the line of their direction, and by advancing it further out from the center of motion, 
and this upon the principles of the resolution of force upon which principle all machinery is founded. These are its uses. But what is most observable in it is that it appears to be supplemental, as it were, to the frame, added, as it should almost seem, afterward. Not quite necessary, but very convenient. It is separate from the other bones, that is, it is not connected with any other bones by the common mode of union. It is soft, or hardly formed, in infancy, and produced by an ossification, of the inception or progress of which no account can be given from the structure or exercise of the part. 6. The shoulder blade is, in some material respects, a very singular bone, it appearing to be made so expressly for its own purpose, and so independently of every other reason. In such quadrupeds as have no collar bones, which are by far the greatest number, the shoulder blade has no bony communication with the trunk, either by a joint or process or in any other way. It does not grow to or out of any other bone of the trunk. It does not apply to any other bone of the trunk. I know not whether this be true of any second bone in the body, except perhaps the os hyoides. In strictness it forms no part of the skeleton. It is bedded in the flesh, attached only to the muscles. It is no other than a foundation bone for the arm, laid in, separate, as it were, and distinct from the general ossification. The lower limbs connect themselves at the hip with bones which form part of the skeleton, but this connection in the upper limbs, being wanting, a basis whereupon the arm might be articulated, was to be supplied by a detached ossification for the purpose. End of section 7